Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19. All new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. I'm Rob Breckenridge. If you missed today's show, we talked about Inderjit Singh Rayat, the only man ever convicted for any role in the Air India bombings and why he's walking out of jail today. We also talked about math curriculum in Alberta, a big meeting set for tomorrow night to talk about concerns about math curriculum and why math scores in Alberta are going down. Be listening to Kincaid and Breckenridge weekdays 930 to 1230 right here on News Talk 770 and Newstalk770.com. Welcome to this hour of the program, Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Just Breckenridge today. Roger Kincaid is uh, off until Monday. Uh, so it's me, Rob, with you here today. 974-8255 is a telephone number. Uh, we're going to talk about math curriculum after 1130. We're going to hear from uh, Lisa Davis uh, with the uh, Calgary Association of Parents and School Councils. Uh, they're organizing an event tomorrow night here in Calgary to talk about math curriculum. One of the people they're bringing in is uh, Anna Stokey, who's a, a math professor at the University of Manitoba, and has been pretty outspoken about the so-called discovery math. So we'll get into that after 1130. Uh, later on today, we're going to talk about this uh, standoff in Oregon, which it still seems to be ongoing, but a number of people have been arrested. In fact, one uh, person was shot to death by police. So we'll get the latest on what's happening regarding this uh, occupation of this remote federal building and what exactly happened yesterday. So more on that coming up later as well. Uh, off the top of this hour, they want to talk about the Air India bombing. Uh, 1985, more than 300 people killed in what was, uh, really until that point, the worst act of terrorism. Period. Uh, and it remains the, the worst uh, act of uh, terrorism uh, for this country. And it's certainly concerning that more than 30 years later, those responsible have not been brought to justice. And the concern that maybe they never will. There is one person who was convicted of playing a role in the Air India bombing. Inderjit, uh, Inderjit Singh Rayad was in fact convicted three times. Uh, but he is getting out of jail today, released on uh, statutory release. And despite it all, despite his time behind bars, despite the time that's passed, he seems rather unrepentant. And in no mood, it seems, to uh, talk about any of his co-conspirators. Uh, Kim Bolin has followed this story for many years. Uh, she's a reporter with the Vancouver Sun, also author of the book Loss of Faith, How the Air India Bombers Got Away with Murder. Kim, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, so does it surprise you at all that Inderjit Singh Rayat has not really renounced his views or is not really remorseful for the role he played? No, that doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, I've been watching this fellow uh, throughout uh, various court proceedings going back uh, 25 years. I've been at his parole hearings uh, when the media has been invited to those parole hearings. And the only thing he seems to be sorry about is that he himself has been in prison. You know, he's shed a tear or two in front of parole board members in the past, 
when he was talking about, you know, losing out on his own family memories with his children and the distance, in fact, that's grown in that family because he's been in custody. Uh, there was one parole hearing, I'll never forget it, back in Kingston in 2006, and he was asked by parole board members who were really grilling him, you know, if he could even name uh, the Japanese victims of the second bombing in Narita, Japan, and he couldn't. He couldn't. So, you know, it really kind of undercut any comments he made about being remorseful when he didn't even, you know, know the names of his victims. So um, I don't think he's remorseful. I mean, clearly, if he was remorseful, wouldn't he come forward and help Canadians bring an end to, you know, this travesty of justice by identifying the other people involved in this terrible act of terrorism? Well, as the parole board uh, told him, uh, it said, you have maintained the lies you told in court as recently as mid-2013. You have indicated that you now recognize that your deception while testifying demonstrates your support for political-based violence. Your shift to accepting this responsibility is only partial and relatively recent. This support for political violence, the, the whole rationale behind this attack in the first place, what was it that motivated them? What were they trying to accomplish? Well, he was very close to people with the uh, Barbara Khalsa a group founded by uh, Burnaby Mann at the time, Talvinder Singh Parmar, who's since been killed in custody in India. Uh, this group was advocating uh, the use of violence to gain a separate Sikh state uh, carved out of Punjab, a state in India. They were, of course, uh, very upset by events in June of 1984 when then Prime Minister Indira Gandhi sent the Indian Army into the Golden Temple in Amritsar. That's the holiest Sikh shrine. And, uh, you know, her rationale was to rid the temple complex of some armed militants there. But, of course, by sending in the army uh, with tanks, it wasn't a strategic execution of a plan, and there were many innocent pilgrims killed. So those images were, you know, broadcast around the world. Uh, even in the pre-internet days, they had a huge impact, and they really increased support for this separatist movement. Uh, and, you know, the Berber Khalsa, amongst other Sikh, uh, separatist organizations operating in Canada and abroad, uh, vowed to get revenge for that attack. The Air India bombing uh, was that revenge. Okay. Now, look, I mean, 329 people died on that flight. If if Inderjit Singh Rayat had been convicted of committing 329 murders, he would not ever be leaving prison. So what was he convicted of, and what do we know about his role? Well, what ended up happening in this investigation is that, you know, the original plan was to blow up two Air India planes. Uh, the bombs were built here in B.C. Uh, they were sent on connecting flights, one through Toronto, which went on to the Air India plane that blew up off the coast of Ireland. The other went the other direction on a connecting flight through Narita, Japan. And before it could be put onto an Air India plane, some baggage handlers dropped it and it blew up and they died. So there was much better forensic evidence in the Japanese bombing uh, because, you know, it happened on ground. And there was uh, a very um, amazing investigation where they were able to trace the bits of that bomb you know, to uh, parts that were purchased in Duncan, British Columbia, by Rayette. So he was initially charged and convicted only of manslaughter in that Narita bombing. He got a 10-year sentence. But everybody knew that that was part of the same plot as the Air India bombing. So when he was completing that sentence, he was charged with 
one count of first-degree murder and one count of conspiracy for the Air India bombing. There were no 329 counts. It was sort of one murder conspiracy count and one first-degree murder count laid. Now, before that case was to go to trial, for Mr. Rayat and his two co-accused, Raputam and Singh Mal and Ajab Singh Bagri, Rayat agreed to plead guilty again to manslaughter. He only got a five-year sentence for that. Uh, but he was expected, if called, to testify truthfully at the trial of the other two men. He did not do that. That then led to the perjury uh, charge and trial against him, and he was convicted in 2010 of perjury, and he got a nine-year sentence. So ironically, his perjury sentence was longer than his sentence for admitting a role in the Air India bombing. Wow. So... One would have expected then that, that a plea deal would include an expectation then that, that you help us get these other guys. And maybe that was the assumption. So uh, he had no intention of doing so. Those lies he told on the stand were lies to protect the other two, essentially. Oh, yes. And there was a very, you know, telling moment after he completed that testimony. And, I mean, we counted up the number of times he said, oh, I don't know. I don't remember. I don't recall you know, throughout. It was just a sham. It really was a joke, right? It was very frustrating uh, for the family members that were in attendance, um, you know, entertaining, if you will, to see him sparring with this Crown prosecutor, uh, Leonard Doust, who did, you know, his best to draw the information out of Rayad. Um, you know, but it, it, when he left the stand, he he bowed to the two men with his hands together as if, you know, in reverence. And then we knew, okay, well, you know, it's a done deal. Obviously, they knew he wasn't going to out them, and he's letting uh, uh, them know that he's never going to out them. Well, and it's pretty clear that we, we know enough about his role to, to conclude that he does know and could identify other co-conspirators. Um, how, how far do we think it goes? Um, how big a, a conspiracy was this? How many people involved? Well, I think we believe that at the core, we're, there was probably, you know, 10 to 12 people um, you know, we know there were two men that took bombs to the airport. We know there was a man that was identified as Mr. X who stayed with Rayat for a week on Vancouver Island doing test bombings. And he claimed he never knew this guy's name. You know, so there's three people. Uh, there's also, um, you know, the two men that were charged, who many people believe were in fact guilty. Uh, and there, there were others, uh, you know, whose names came out during the course of the trial that had some role, perhaps booking the tickets or, you know, attending uh, meetings of support. So I would say 10 to 12 believed to be directly at the heart of the conspiracy. There's probably another two dozen, you know, that had some knowledge about what was taking place. You know, this was quite a widespread movement in B.C. at the time, and mm -hmm. people supported each other. So even if they didn't want to take the direct action that some were prepared to take, they were certainly sympathetic. Um, you know, and, and, you know, there probably, there might even be 100 people alive in B.C. today that have details of this uh, act of terrorism who could, you know, chose to go forward to the authorities and lay out what they know. And they're just not going to do that. They're going to take those secrets to their graves. Well, of course, years later, uh, there was uh, a murder of a, a journalist, Tara Singh Hare, uh, in 1998, I believe it was, yes. uh, and he was going to, to testify for the Crown. Now, do we believe then that Rayat, for example, knows who would be responsible for that, who was responsible for that? Well, Rayat would have been in prison, so he probably wouldn't have had any direct knowledge of that murder plot, but certainly... Um, you know, it has come out that it was members of the Boba Khalsa who hired some 
young kind of gangsters within their community to go and assassinate Tara Hare because they knew what he knew. You know, ironically, it proves that the statements he gave to police were accurate, uh, implicating Ajab Singh Bagri and the Burbakalsa in the bombing. You know, it certainly suggests they were accurate because otherwise why would you kill a guy if you didn't think he had any accurate information to, to testify about in court? Uh, Tara Singh Hare, um, you know, was giving statements to me for my articles in the Vancouver Sun. He was writing in his own newspaper. Uh, he had been paralyzed in 1988 attack, um, you know, a, an attempt to, to silence him after he was out in the Air India bombers. And then 10 years later, he was murdered. Now, you know, another tragedy in this whole saga is that Tara Hare's killers have never been charged, even though, you know, a lot of information about who was behind the plot has come to light through other sources. That's what just seems so frustrating about it, that there, there seems to be all this evidence pointing in the direction of people responsible for the bombing, responsible for this assassination, and yet nothing's come of it. There are still, as you say, literally probably dozens of people uh, still in the Vancouver area who can answer these questions, who know who these people are, and yet we've got nothing to show for it. Well, that's so true. You know, it's very, very frustrating. You know, and it's interesting because, you know, from reading the parole documents that were released yesterday, we know that Rayad is still a remorseless man. We know that he's still maintaining these lies about who was involved in the plot. And on two prior occasions, uh, the Parole Board of Canada held extraordinary hearings to keep Rayad in beyond his statutory release and the two earlier prosecutions. So, they had a tool in their tool chest, uh, you know, on recommendation from Correctional Service of Canada to apply to keep Rayette in until 2018. And that wasn't done this time, even though the conditions, you know, appear to be identical. The guy's remorseless. He's covering up for people. You know, he had a role in the biggest act of terrorism in Canadian history. So, you know, that just compounds the frustration of family members. Now, last year, I guess it would have been on the 30th anniversary of, of the bombing, uh, the RCMP said that their their investigation is still active and ongoing. What, what does that mean? Well, it means there are some dedicated officers still plugging away on this and hoping to get, you know, the piece of evidence that allows some new charges to be laid. You know, sometimes that does occur uh, against an individual who's let their guard down, and, you know, disclose to someone else uh, that they were involved in this. Sometimes it comes from a person, you know, with some knowledge, you know, facing, uh, you know, some dire situation in their own life that decides they want to come clean, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I know they're working hard on it, but uh, there are a lot of limitations on this case, primarily, you know, the, the widespread belief uh, out there in uh, the community uh, that, you know, you can get away with murder in this country and nothing happens. So that's one problem. And then the other problem is, oh, well, Tara Hare was a witness. Look what happened to him. And mm-hmm. I've heard that countless times in the last 30 years. Well, that, that, that's what's terrifying about it, that people who can get away with murder, uh, that's pretty frightening. So what would stop them from murdering you? And as you say, I mean, we, we saw what happened to someone who was going to testify. So you've got those who are committed to the cause who are adhering to this code of silence for that reason. And then you've got people who are legitimately afraid of what's going to happen to them. Yeah, but there has to be. I mean, you know, this is Canada. We um, all enjoy the benefits of this country. 
And part of those benefits is, you know, it has to be our commitment to do the right thing as citizens. So, you know, we're not supposed to run the other way when we see a crime committed in front of us on the street, right? We're supposed to stop and cooperate with police and do, you know, the best we can to allow these institutions to work. And that's just never happened in Air India. And there's been no consequence, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, personally, uh, I wondered why... You know, instead of charging Rayat with with perjury, you know, based on those lies he told, you know, why not just take back the plea deal and charge him with murder, right? Then he would be, you know, in jail for uh, probably the rest of his life. Uh, but that didn't happen. So there's a sense that there are weaknesses in our judicial system or there's not the appetite to do the hard things, you know, and this is a very hard case. Well, and it's going to be interesting now to see what what life is like for Rayat and, and how political he is outside of prison. And I mean, that's one of the conditions of his release is that he's forbidden from participating in political activities, associating with, with criminals, having no contact with any relatives of, of bombing victims. He must undergo counseling, all of these kinds of things. Uh, does that seem like a, a lot to expect from this guy? Not really. I mean, you know, I, I wonder how closely he'll be monitored. He is living in a halfway house. You know, there's you know, some measure of, you know, control because he is in that uh, circumstance. However, you know, if he goes to a, a Gudwara in Surrey, you know, where he may meet people that ha- share that ideology, how is anyone going to be able to document that he was, you know, seeking out sort of political extremism? It's right there in front of him. I mean, we have one temple in Surrey that proudly displays the portrait of Talvinder Singh Parmar, the founder of the Barbara Khalsa, and the suspected mastermind of the Air India bombing, the portrait is hanging on the outside of the temple, and he's designated a martyr. You know, so if Ray goes into that temple because that portrait's there, is he in violation of his parole conditions? I doubt it, because all the politicians in the federal election campaign went into that temple right past that portrait. So there's been a real mixed message sent out for many years about, you know, the seriousness of Canadian authorities in dealing with these guys. You know, when they are going to a temple to try and get votes as the portrait of the Air India mastermind hangs on the temple wall. And by, and by the way, Kim, and some people were te- uh, texting to ask this, that why aren't we deporting this guy? Is, is he a Canadian citizen? Could he be he's deported? Would there be a, he is a Canadian citizen. Yeah, he's no, a Canadian okay. citizen, All right. so I don't think that'll be happening. No, no, that won't be happening. Well, uh, we've not heard the last of this story. More to VancouverSun.com. Kim, thanks for joining us this morning. Appreciate this. Thanks for having me. All right, take care. Kim Bolin is a reporter with the Vancouver Sun. Uh, She's also the author of the book Loss of Faith, How the Air India Bombers Got Away with Murder. And here we are in 2016, and that title is as true as it was when she wrote the book. They certainly did get away with murder. And I guess to them, Inderjit Singh Rhea must seem like a hero. Because he kept his mouth shut. He went to prison, kept his mouth shut. He's out of prison, right? It sounds like a, a mafia thing. Well, you did a good job. You kept your mouth shut. You come out of prison a hero. And in fact, one of the reasons he was in prison is because he lied to keep two others out of prison. So that's all we got to show for it. A guy who agreed to plead guilty to manslaughter and then was convicted of perjury and is now out of jail. So 30 years, 30 plus years after the fact, is anything going to come of this? The RCMP say they're still investigating. You know, as Kim said, hoping for some new evidence to come forward, which really at this point would be a person willing to talk. And um, that hasn't gone so well before. 
All right, we're going to take a break here. We'll come back. 974-8255 is our number. This is Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Welcome back. Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Rob Breckenridge with you, Roger, off for a few more days. After 12 o'clock, we'll get the latest on what's happening with this uh, militia situation in Oregon and the occupation of this uh, federal building, a remote federal building. Uh, but some uh, big developments yesterday, the arrest of a number of people and the death of one of these militiamen and some kind of an incident with police. We'll talk about that after 12 o'clock. There's been a lot of talk in, in Alberta about the changing math curriculum and the harm that this so-called discovery math is having and resulting in lower math scores. And we've talked a lot about it on this program. We've uh, had Dr. Uh, Tran Davies uh, on this program many times. The uh, Kalmar Mamu really helped bring this issue to the forefront by uh, spearheading this grassroots initiative that's resulted in this petition with thousands and thousands of signatures. Now, the sense that we're getting from, from Alberta education under the previous government, and even under this, that maybe the pendulum's starting to swing back the other way that maybe traditional algorithms are, are again, becoming part of the math curriculum. Uh, but there still seems to be that, that mix. Discovery math uh, still seems to be a part of the curriculum. So how big a problem is this? Uh, are we beginning to address the problem? What's the consequence of having a flawed math curriculum? Well, this is all the uh, focus of, of an event taking place tomorrow night organized by the Calgary Association for Parents and School Councils. Uh, It's uh, tomorrow night at the Performing Arts Center at Weber Academy, the Math Excellence Forum. Now, we'll get to one of the the math professors who's been outspoken on this issue, who's going to be appearing at at this event tomorrow night. But let's start here with Lisa Davis, uh, who is president of the Calgary Association of Parents and School Councils, CAPSC.ca is their website. Lisa, thanks for joining us here. Thanks for having us. All right. So, first of all, tell us a bit about uh, your organization and, and why you, you believe this issue is important. Sure. Well, CAPSI's been around for 14 years. So we represent both school councils and individuals. And uh, we currently have about 72 school councils as members, representing about 44,000 students. And we have another 1,000 individual members as well. Okay. So we started, um, the reason that we brought this, this issue forward is at our meetings, um, you know, we started hearing a lot of anecdotal evidence about math issues, um, including a big increase in the use of tutors, a uh, big increase in the time parents are spending helping their kids at home, and uh, a lack of uh, information about what the kids are, are doing in school. And so the, the catalyst, though, for us really were these fall PAT scores that got released, and we see that we have 28% of kids in grade 9 are not reaching an acceptable level, and acceptable this year was 42%, so it's not a very high threshold. Uh, And as worrying, we are also seeing a 20% decline in kids achieving excellence in grade 6. So, you know, in discussion with parents, they were really looking for what can we do, what are the solutions, what should be happening at the school level and and at the curriculum level. And so in order to address that, we're bringing together experts who have a strong track record in achieving math results to share their best practices and offer some guidance for parents to take back into their schools and communities and and start to figure out what we need to do. Okay. Lisa, is it your sense that anything has changed in Alberta, that that we're starting to make improvements to the curriculum, that that the education minister, the government, recognizes that previous changes have been problematic? I, I do think there's been some recognition. In uh, August, the deputy minister sent out 
some math clarifications. And um, but we're not sure how widely distributed they've been. They, they, these, this new information has not been the subject of discussion at school councils. Um, and in fact, there's a number of teachers who actually seem to be unaware of that. So, so, so we've had some movement. Um, we also note, you know, the minister did acknowledge in the October press release that he was concerned about the grade six scores. But um, so. So there has been some, and it's interesting to note when the department redid their website in December, they removed um, all references to inspiring education, which was really the driver behind a lot of these changes. Mm-hmm. We don't know yet if it's a rebrand or or, or it's actually changed, um, and I guess we're we're really waiting. We're, we're really waiting to hear. All right. Well, let's bring uh, Anna Stokey into the conversation. Uh, she is a professor of uh, math at the University of Winnipeg, has been uh, outspoken on this issue, is also involved in the Western Initiative for Strengthening Education in Math, wisemath.org, more on this issue there. Anna, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Now, you'll be uh, on your way to Calgary tomorrow, as I understand. You'll be speaking at this event tomorrow night. How, how pressing an issue is this? How concerned are you by what you've been seeing uh, in, in other provinces, not just Alberta? Well, um, you know, there have been declines in math scores across the the country. Um, Manitoba and Alberta saw some of the greatest declines on the latest PIMS results. And so it it is concerning. You don't want to see the scores decreasing. You want to see them at least staying the same or or rising. Mm -hmm. And what's especially concerning is when you see from those results that the percentage of children performing at the lowest levels in math has doubled in some provinces like Alberta and have that the higher at the higher level the kids that are performing at the highest level have has halved over a 10 year period so you get concerned that a um there are more students struggling and b that there are fewer students excelling now then do you link that directly to changes in the curriculum well I think, you know, there there have been changes kind of going on across North America for some time. Now, some of it is in the curriculum, and there's certainly been curriculum changes, and some of it's just in the, the atmosphere, the professional development that is offered to teachers regularly, that sort of thing. Certainly, we have seen a shift away um, from the concentration on teaching kids the basics and ensuring that they have a strong foundation in math, fluency with things like times tables and fluency with adding and subtracting, you know, numbers and, and, and working with fractions and that sort of thing. And it's moved to more towards a more conceptual type of teaching where you see children learning to do basic arithmetic problems some of the time with using really complicated methods like using pictures and that sort of thing, when it could be done really easily just using efficient standard algorithms. And I've seen it myself, and i got I got two kids, in, in mm-hmm. one's in elementary school, one's now middle school, and right. I've seen the way they've been told to combat math problems and all these mm-hmm. different ways where, you know, it takes up almost an entire page. Absolutely. Uh, drawing yeah. out these, <laughs> right, just to, to yeah. come at the answer. It's, it's really quite strange. How recent yeah. are, is this? Well, I, I mean, in, you know, it's probably been going on since around 2006, 2007, 2008, somewhere around there. And, um, it's, at least that's where it started to pick up steam, right? The sort of multiple strategies, the convoluted methods, et cetera. 
And, I mean, at some points along the way there, there was even children were actually discouraged from using the efficient methods, the, the standard methods, like addition with a carry or subtraction with a borrow and that sort of thing. But like you said, some of that is starting to move back. It's, you know, kids now can use standard algorithms in Alberta classrooms, as I understand it. It's just that they're not required, and I, I believe they probably still are using a lot of those convoluted methods. What's the rationale behind it? I mean, you know, mm-hmm. there, there seems to be the argument that if we're just forcing kids to memorize, 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 there's mm-hmm. not that, yeah. that, that kind of creative sort of thinking that helps them sure. understand why mm-hmm. and how they're getting the answer. So that's exactly the rationale behind it. So that's what a, a proponent of teaching that type of math in that way would say to you. Well, we're teaching understanding, not memorization. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it's a false dichotomy, right? It makes it makes no sense to think that you can that you can't teach both, right? You can you can teach children how to understand a math concept, and you can also make sure that they have an efficient method for doing it and that they understand that efficient method. I mean, the issue, the issue is that children are getting introduced to these basic, you know, operations using really complicated pictures and things, and they're not moving past that, right? Like, you need to move past that onto efficient methods. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to do math later that requires the use of those efficient methods. Well, and, and is that something you've seen even then for, for kids coming out of high school and going into university mm-hmm. that they don't have that basis? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, and I mean, it depends. In, in Manitoba, there's three streams of math in high school, and it depends which stream you're talking about. But even sometimes our pre-calculus students have uh, difficulty working with fractions really quickly just because they haven't had enough practice. They've been reliant on calculators, that sort of thing. Now, you mentioned Alberta and Manitoba in particular. Does mm-hmm. that suggest that maybe other provinces haven't gone down this path? No, um, most provinces have adopted a curriculum that sort of has what I call it's based on discovery math. And now what I, what I mean by that, that doesn't mean discovery math is explicitly listed in the curriculum. What I mean is that the sort of um, techniques and procedures for teaching are, <clears throat> are embedded in the curriculum and the techniques, the multiple strategies, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But most provinces in Canada have, have adopted something like this. Manitoba and Alberta are both under the same curriculum, du- curriculum the WNCP curriculum. They both made changes recently um, adding uh, times table memorization at the end of grade five, which is still rather late, but it's a step in the right direction. Yeah, I've noticed that. My, my son's in grade four, and they're still doing these, these weird ways of right. uh, addressing the problems, but at least yeah. they are doing the times at tables. At least they're doing it. And exactly. they're memorizing the times tables. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so there is that. Yeah. Um, so let's bring Lisa back in. Lisa, so what, what do you hope comes of, of this meeting? Well, we, we really hope that we, we start, um, we develop a sense of urgency around the need to solve this problem. You know, a year ago, 80 mathematicians from the U of A, Nate, and Grant McEwen sent a letter to the education minister expressing their concerns and opinions as to what needed to happen. We have, um, and, and the changes have been slow. And, and so we, we need to start focusing on what is working. When we can look at schools and say, and their methods and say, you know, this works and this is what we need to talk about, and, and that approach is what needs to be driving the conversation. And, um, and right now, 
it's that conversation doesn't seem to be taking place with the kind of urgency that it needs. You know, we talk a lot in Alberta these days, given the economic climate, about the need for diversification. And when we look at um, Apple, you know, the company Apple overtaking ExxonMobil a few years ago as the most valuable company in the world, that has real lessons for Alberta. But if we're going to have a third of our grade nine kids unable to complete math, how are they going to participate in the shift that's taking place? And I think one of the other things that's interesting to note, we've been trying to figure out how many kids graduate uh, with high school with, uh, with math. And we don't seem to track that. And what we do track is that we know that 52% of, of kids will write a math diploma exam within three years, but we don't actually know how many kids are graduating, what percentage of kids are graduating with a 30-level math. So, you know, we also need to start looking at, at some of those things as well. Yeah, so, I mean, part of it is the, the need to address the curriculum issue, but there, there's also things that, that parents can do. And maybe part of this is about empowering parents. There's no question about that. I think, you know, parents are frustrated because they know there's a problem, but they're not really sure what questions to ask or, or even who to turn to to ask those questions. And so the goal here is to give them a framework and some examples of things that are working in other schools and so that they can take back in, into their schools and say, you know, let's look at this because it seems to be delivering results. All right. Still space available at this tomorrow night? There is, and um, you know we're everybody's welcome. So we hope to we hope to fill the room. All right, well, Lisa Davis, thank you, uh, Professor Anastogi, thank you as well for joining us uh, today. Appreciate this. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Uh, Lisa Davis is uh, president of the Calgary Association of uh, Parents and School Councils. They're organizing this event, uh, so you can register for this at their website, which is capsc c a p s c dot c a. And um, I believe it's $7 uh, for a ticket or for members of, of the association, it's, it's free. So you can register the website. So uh, Anna Stokey, professor of math at the University of Winnipeg, is going to be speaking. Uh, also, a um, number of other speakers as well. So it's, it's going to be, a, in part, a conversation, again, about these curriculum issues. But also part of it is to try to help empower parents, where they can maybe fill that gap and make sure their own kids don't, don't fall behind on math skills. Uh, we're late for a break here. We're going to do that. It is uh, Kincaid and Breckenridge on Newstalk 770.